This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and with me is Dan from Shares. Hi, yeah. So this week we're going to look at whether previous corona crisis investment losses have turned around, what the outlook is for house prices, whether investment trusts are cutting their dividends as well as companies, and the slightly sombre topic of getting your will sorted in lockdown. But before we get to that, I thought we would start with some upbeat and positive news, which Dan has in terms of markets. Yeah, I mean, I don't know when was the last time any of our listeners looked at their investment portfolio, but you might be pleasantly surprised. It sort of seems like many of the losses that we had early this year are turning back into profit, which is good. That's great news. I have to admit, I've not looked at mine for a bit because it got a little bit depressing, if I'm honest. So you're saying it's safe to go back in and look? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because uh, I, I, I switched one of my pensions into a SIP at Christmas. So I kind of know that if I look at my portfolio, it's almost like it started almost started on the first of January. So I had a look the other day, and and nearly nearly everything in there is now in positive territory again, which is brilliant. Maybe so that's only... just because you're an awesome investor. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, the only stuff in there that is still losing me a bit of money is a small cap fund, an infrastructure fund. And there's, an un, there's a value fund and an emerging market one. So everything else I've got is very good. I'm, I'm pleased. I mean, I think this is, I think I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that lots of our listeners will be in the same situation where they've seen stuff uh, repaired. And so, so really, what it, was, it should be well done to anyone who held on to their investments through the crisis because it was a pretty nasty time. Uh, to see all these sort of share prices falling fast, um, and, but you know, we we did we talked about it several times on the podcast that that the best thing in these situations to do is to sit still and do nothing, and if you have done that, hopefully now you're reaping the rewards. So I guess the million dollar question is whether this is the end of the of the slump, and I think. When you look at various kind of surveys of investor outlook and economists and things like that, um, there seems to be lots of suggestions that we've kind of come out of the worst of it, but that there might be much more volatility and much more bad news ahead. I know I said this was going to be a positive segment. And I've just made that really negative. But, <laughs> well, I think it, the caveat is, isn't it, that, that things are looking better now, but that doesn't mean that, that's, that, that we're out of it entirely. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, if you look at the US stock market, the S&P 500 is only a fraction below its year-to-date starting point. Um, the NASDAQ is actually up to about 10% on the year now, but the FTSE 100 is still 16% below. And if you think about the construction of that index, it's very heavily weighted towards oil companies and banks who have been really out of favour. And whilst you know, some of the oil ones have started to bounce back. It's still, you know, the, the index doesn't have those big tech companies like the the US ones that have really been in favour. But I think it's still remarkable. You know, if you look at the backdrop, there's violence in the US, uh, renewed tensions in Hong Kong. You know, the US and China are not getting along. There's Brexit 
trade talks still need to be sorted. And of course, we've got this pandemic still there. So, I mean, it, it is quite remarkable the markets are going up. But, you know, there's this phrase to say that markets always tend to overshoot both ways. So they get oversold and then perhaps overbought. And so do we have any kind of hints? We've obviously the UK is starting to ease lockdown and we've got more news of shops being able to open, which is obviously good for retail um, share prices um, and maybe further down the line some easing in the travel industry. But do we have any any hints from elsewhere in the world as to how that might unfold for investors? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think perhaps before I sort of touch on some of that stuff, it's probably worth explaining why markets have started to sort of pick up again. Because if, if you think that we've got all those negative things going on in the background, why is it that markets are going up? And, and really, it started in March with central banks around the world giving monetary and fiscal support. So they've been buying corporate bonds, ETFs and, and even shares in order to prop up financial markets. And of course, more recently, like you say, we, we, we've seen lockdown restrictions are being lifted and um, businesses and schools are reopening, death rates are coming down linked to coronavirus. Um, and, and Barclays recently said that household spending in the UK was just 5% off its normal level, which is quite remarkable. Um, that is quite surprising. Yeah, there's all sorts of in, there's, there seems to be interest in in buying cars, in, in house purchases, um, all, all these sort of indicators are showing sort of signs of recovery. But And then, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen the news recently, there's, there's quite an interesting story about how massive queues to get into Ikea as it reopened. Mm. Um, you know, in, in China, Marriott says all of its hotels are now reopened and it's already seeing... Um, a rebound in business demand. So you know, it's it's these little things that are all adding up to signals to suggest the world is doing its very best to get back on its feet um, and you know, helping to sustain the stock market rally. In the US, after seeing some very gloomy jobs figures in April, well, so very surprisingly, U.S. employers added two and a half million jobs in May. So that sort of narrowed the jobless rate down from 14.7 percent to 13.3 percent. So you know, this improvement in the labor market, was adding to hopes that um, you know, the U.S. might experience a more rapid, rapid economic bounce back um, than many feared. And, and you know, perhaps the same will happen in other parts of the world as well. Um, but then are there any indicators of, of reasons why things aren't quite so rosy? Yes, unfortunately. There's always a there's always a but, isn't there? So it's mm. um I mean to to me it's I, I'm I'm particularly worried about when furlough um and other sort of support schemes are removed and what that might do for consumer spending and also what it might mean for, for companies who will take a proper look at their um, employment needs versus sort of the, the strength of their sales. I'm a bit concerned that we're going to have more job losses. Um, and so when this support is removed, you know, what does that mean for the economy? And, and then that's, will that cause a sort of a trickle effect of um, that investors might sort of lose their sort of 
optimistic viewpoint they've currently got because i mean in in recent days we've seen people like rolls royce and, and aston martin all talking about job cuts um I, I was on a call with a with a fund manager from one of the big asset management companies and and they were recently and they were saying that the range of earnings forecasts for companies is the widest they've seen in a long time now that tells you that analysts just don't have a proper idea uh, I have enough confidence, I should say, to to be able to predict what company is going to be earning. And so it's all this talk that people are, are looking through 2020 earnings and, and focus on 2021s. But how can we really have much confidence about what a company will earn next year when we don't know how fast countries will bounce back from the pandemic and therefore how businesses will, will cope? Because there's kind of two schools of thought, isn't there? There's one that that people have been saving lots of money, which we talked about on the podcast last week, and that there's a lot of kind of pent-up spending power. So when businesses do open up again and when people are able to spend their money again, there, there could be this flood of money that comes out where people have been delaying big purchases like cars, like you talked about, and we could see a real boost to the economy. Obviously, on the flip side to that is that, like you said, the furlough scheme will will kind of ease back and will eventually end and that could lead to more job losses which leads to um people not having as much money to spend so yeah i think we'll probably end up a bit like we talked about last week we'll have this kind of divided country won't we where some people will be in campaign and some people will be in camp b in terms of their ability to spend and their willingness to spend no, absolutely. I, mean, I think there is an argument to say we're witnessing a sort of a bigger fool rally at the moment with, with stocks where investors think they can continue making money buying and flipping them. But um, to, to me, it's that there is a lot of uncertainty out there and stock markets do not like uncertainty. Um, and I wonder whether things could it could be some negative shocks to come. Um, therefore, you know, perhaps you want to have a look at your portfolio now and you know consider maybe locking in some of those profits if you've got more speculative investments in there. Because you know, at the end of the day, we look back to March and it was, if you talk to fund managers, the ones that had cash um, spare that were able to buy stuff cheaply, um, you know, saw it as a real advantage. And I wonder, you know, if we were to have another market sell-off, how much capacity uh, have we all got in our portfolios to be able to buy more stuff if, if, if you wanted to? So... Um, I do think that you know if, if everything's looking shiny now, um, you should you know perhaps be thinking, well, what's my next step? Um, you know, if you think there's some very easy things that could destabilize markets, you know, this this sort of tension inside the civil unrest inside the U.S. could could get worse. Um, who knows how the U.S. and China are going to be getting along? Um, you know, there could be a second wave of the pandemic. Certainly, I would suggest there would be more corporate bankruptcies and. You just unfortunately just cannot rule out delays to getting a vaccine or if getting a vaccine at all, really, for, for coronavirus. So um, so without sort of wanting to, to sort of end the segment on a negative note, I just, you know, um, when everyone is looking so happy and smiley about stock markets, um, it, it's not really the time for you to be sitting back and just just expecting everything to be an easy breeze now with, with your investments. If we now move on to... The property market, so obviously anything to do with housing pretty much ground to halt in the thick of the lockdown. But we're now seeing viewing start again and 
Um, the market's starting to reopen and we, we're starting to get initial figures on what's going on with house prices and uh, in, in the world of sort of residential real estate. So, Laura, what is you know, this is the, the ultimate um, dinner party topic. Um, I'm sure that there's been lots of people in lockdown have been talking about property prices over the hedge with their neighbours. Um, what, what is going on at the moment? Yes, there's been lots of talk um of a big change to the property market in terms of people have realised throughout lockdown that their home doesn't quite work for them. And if they want to maybe work from home in the future or they don't have a garden at the moment, they've realised that's really important to them. I think there's lots of people out there that are thinking about moving for different circumstances. And there's been some talk of people moving more out of cities, so out of of cities like London. Um, And moving more into the countryside because they've realised that they don't need to commute five days a week and they can work from home some of the time and they can get a bigger property elsewhere. But like you say, the housing market kind of ground to a halt. Viewings were not allowed um, and now it's starting to reopen. We're getting our first signs of what might have happened to house prices. But I would say there's a large caveat in this. So Nationwide came out with some figures last week which got reported very widely and had some very kind of um, headline-grabbing figures to it, which showed that the house prices had had their largest monthly fall for 11 years, which sounds pretty catastrophic. And I think when you think about it, you think, gosh, then that means that anyone who owns a home is is slightly doomed and has has seen their house price fall. But I think the big caveat to this is, is there were obviously, this was figures based on May, and there were so few transactions in May Nationwide's own figures just look at its own customer base, so it doesn't look across the entire market. So it'll only look at people that are taking a mortgage out, not any cash buyers, and it'll only look at people taking a mortgage with Nationwide. So then once you drill that down, that's going to be a pretty small sample size of people that were actually able to complete on their properties in May. So I think you have to take it a little bit with a pinch of salt. And I think all of these figures that are coming out at the moment... Um, you have to take slightly with a pinch of salt in terms of how reliable the data is because it's based on a on a small figure. So, for example, the government, the ONS, has um, a house price index that it publishes and it's actually suspended it at the moment because it said that there's just not enough data for it to be able to determine what house prices are doing at the moment. So I think that gives you a really good indication of, of how difficult it is to work out what's actually going on out there because there's such... So few transactions and such little data. Yeah, so I mean, Zoopla, which is one of the property portals, perhaps give you sort of a broader look at the market. That they came out and said um, that, that searches for properties in England had um, soared once lockdown restrictions are starting to be eased in mid-bay, but uh, and now they've come out and said that you know property property activity in England just really rebounded. Um, to just the sort of same levels just before lockdown but they did say that london was lagging behind the rest of the country so uh, you could be right in saying that, that perhaps people are rethinking um do they need to be living in the you know in the capital or, or even sort of cities and stuff um it'd be quite interesting that it's i think those figures were particularly interesting because um 
it showed two things. It showed that, um, and I think Rightmove came out with similar figures in terms of the number of visitors to the website was at record highs um, and was really up. And you could write off some of that of, well, people are just really bored in lockdown and everyone likes to look at what their neighbours are selling their houses for or what they could afford in a different part of, of the country. So you could put some of that down to kind of just property browsing. But I know that Rightmove did say that alongside that, actual inquiries so phone calls and emails to estate agents to get more details about properties or arrange viewings were up as well so that tends to suggest that it's not just people bored in lockdown browsing through their neighbors and properties but it is does also show some appetite for people actually going out and buying and moving yeah well i think another way of looking at it is to look at shares in house builders and estate estate agents on the market you you can get a sense of what investors think might happen to the UK property market this year and going into next year and it certainly doesn't give you um, a suggestion of of the the property market just bounce back to what it was normally some of these house builders are trading between 10 and 40 percent down year to date so it's there's a bit of a widespread there depending on um, their balance sheets so how much debt and, and cash they've got um, but really it that would suggest uh, you know against all this market euphoria um, investors aren't quite excited at the moment about massive bounce back in property but um, in terms of estate agents you've got something like Belvoir which is mainly lettings that's much more resilient they're down 10% but Foxton's which is you know about half its business will probably come from transactions selling things in london um you know the shares are down 46 percent year to date so really doesn't send you a sort of a positive sign although i've heard people say to me and you know and and they're sort of quoting anecdotal stuff that they see lots of for sale no not so sold signs that's what i'm saying um sold signs around on the streets i wonder whether these are just transactions that were already sort of bubbling away before lockdown and people had already seen these properties and um, it was just a case of just finalizing them rather than um, you know I, I know that you can go on to you know both house builders and state agents websites and do sort of virtual tours now um, they've got all the technology to do you can have a good old browse around without, without having to go into the property but um, I don't know I mean would you buy a house if you haven't actually been into it I mean, that's a big oh, question, I don't think it? you would, would you? It's going to be the, probably the most expensive purchase you'll make in your life. You're not going to do that just based on some shaky FaceTime call, are you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the protocol at the moment for most estate agents is that you do your initial viewing as a virtual viewing, which is usually where they've done a video tour around the property. And then when you want to do your second viewing... Um, then you can go and do it in person. But there's all sorts of rules that have to be stuck to uh, when you're doing that. So, for example, the homeowner should be out of the house. Um, You should social distance from the estate agent. Um, I think some estate agents aren't letting you take children in, um, so they're limiting kind of the number of people to either one or two people. Um, You have to wipe down everything. One of the ones I found interesting was that internal doors should be left open so that you don't have to use door handles. Um, And then when the homeowners come back, they obviously need to clean down. So I think it it obviously makes the process a lot more 
laborious but in a way maybe it weeds out some of those people who maybe weren't so interested in your property as a as a seller in this market maybe it means that when you get someone viewing your house they've already gone through a fairly thorough screening process and they've got to be quite interested in actually buying it rather than just being a bit bored of a Saturday afternoon. So we've talked a lot on the podcast about dividend cuts by companies, which have obviously hit investors quite dramatically um, in some cases. But we haven't really talked about the impact that it's had on funds and investment trusts. So in particular, Dan's been looking at investment trusts and the income focused ones that have been cutting their payouts. Yeah, so investment trusts have got this little um, advantage over other types of um, investment products in that they can hold up to 15% of their revenue each year in reserve. So they stick it in a rainy day pot. And when you get to very hard times like the moment, they can sort of dip into this pot and top up any short shortfalls that they might have had in their, in their dividends. So it, it does enable them to deliver a sort of a much smoother income stream to investors. So lots of people have been looking at them and thinking, okay, well, if, if so many companies are now cutting dividends this year, then if I put my money into investment trusts, should I just assume I'm just going to get a nice steady stream, which I can't find elsewhere? Um, but actually, the figures are now suggesting they're not as bulletproof as many people might think. Um, so you've got uh, this concept called the Dividend Heroes, which is a list put together by, by the Association of Investment Companies where they, they look at investment trusts that have paid a bit more dividend every year for at least 20 years in a row. And, and I think they, the, the companies on this list will do everything they can to stay on that list because they need it for marketing purposes and it, it's just a sort of a great status to have. But elsewhere, you are seeing property and debt sector investment trusts heavily impacted by the, the sort of the pandemic. And so they've got um, lower expectations for revenue and they're, they're either cutting or, or or suspending entirely their dividends now perhaps more interesting to me i think because the property and debt sector might expect that but infrastructure investment trusts lots of people have been those for dividends and thinking that they are um sort of safe places to be but um we've we've had a couple of um infrastructure investment trusts, GCP Infrastructure and Hickle, have both reduced their dividend guidance for next year, which may surprise people. Um, so in, on the debt side, we've had UK Mortgages, Marble Point Loan Financing and Fair Oaks Income. They're amongst the ones that are either, either suspending entirely or, or cutting their dividends. Um, amongst the equity investment trust um, Vesco Perpetual's UK smaller companies was targeting about 4% yield, but that's been reduced from next year to, to at least 2%. Um, Temple Bar is also warning investors that um, don't expect its full year dividend to be four lots of what it paid in the first quarter as well. And so I, I imagine we're going to see more examples here. So if you have an investment trust in your investment portfolio and are under the impression that it's a safe place of dividends it's definitely worth having a look to see what the commentary is from these trusts in their most recent announcements um, to make sure that you're not going to be caught out if they were to be reducing the amount of money that they're paying to you. 
And one of the things that you can check also is the reserves figure. So where these investment trusts can um, put aside 15% of their previous income, um, they'll have built up a, a reserve pot um, and they'll publish that figure for what their reserve pot is. So you can then look at that and work out how much they've got in reserve and whether they've got for example, enough to cover an entire year's dividend in reserve or whether their reserves are looking a little leaner and they might not be able to dip into those so much. So that will give you an indication of the pot of money they've got available to dip into. But you're right, Dan, you then also need to look at what the fund managers are saying as to whether they're willing to dip into that pot or how much they want to deplete that pot of money. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously with with income investors have been hit by all this dividend stuff but even people with money in cash savings accounts have been hit by reductions in interest rates um, particularly since the bank of england really you know, slashed its base rate but actually nsni national savings investments has been quite a big beneficiary of this hasn't it laura yeah, we've ended up in a, um, a quite a weird scenario. So you basically, the if we take a step back, the competing factors you've got here are that the Bank of England has cut interest rates right down. Um, so that means that banks um, are likely to cut their rates as well. But at the same time, we've also seen lots of people saving money and particularly into cash accounts. So um, like we talked about last week, lots of people not spending as much during lockdown, but their income hasn't changed. Um, and so they're able to save much more money. So we've seen massive inflows into cash savings accounts, which usually also prompts um, banks and building societies to cut their rates because they'll attract enough money in, in, in customer deposits and then they won't need to have such high rates anymore to attract new customers. So when you've got both of those things happening together, that means that rates have just massively plummeted. And so to the extent actually that we've seen um, this week Marcus by Goldman Sachs, which we've talked a lot about before, um, was the market leading uh, cash account provider um, in terms of rates. And it's actually closed its accounts to new customers because it's attracted so much money um, in recent months because it had one of the higher rates um, because people are saving more. Um, so now that option is no longer available to new customers. And so amid all of this, um, NSNI has crept to the top of the leaderboard in terms of interest rates, which is quite an unusual position for it to be in, because normally it would not offer terrible rates, but it certainly wouldn't usually be market leading. Um, it's the government-backed uh, savings provider um, and so generally it's kind of meant to be in the middle of the market and, and not kind of edging out competitors but it's ended up um, offering the top interest rate as everyone else has cut and so people have flocked to it so in April for example 1.5 billion pounds worth of premium bonds were bought um, now this isn't obviously the top rate in the market because premium bonds don't give you an interest rate, they enter you into a price draw. Um, but it shows the, the kind of popularity in, of NSNI as a, as a safe haven, but also how starved of interest uh, cash savers are that they're kind of flocking to this. Yeah, because I, I could have sworn that we talked about in the podcast that NSNI was out of favour with people. God, that must only be three, four months ago. 
how things change. <laughs> I know. And yeah. they were cutting their rates, which I think is what we talked about. They then reversed those rate cuts um, because the other big factor into this is that because NSNI is government-backed, it, it's a way of the government raising money. Um, and obviously the government is spending a lot of money at the moment on um, COVID-19 rescue efforts, whether that's the job retention scheme or whether that's various other schemes. So it's spending a lot of money that it's got to plug that gap. And so one of the ways where it can raise money is through NSNI. Um, and it's obviously seems to be working well because lots of people are, are using the products and, and buying into them. But it is tough for cash savers out there at the moment. I mean, obviously, inflation is falling, but interest rates have fallen a lot. And there's not that much left out there that's offering you a really decent rate. Yeah. So just finally, lots of people don't get around to writing their will. But during the initial part of lockdown, we actually saw a surge in people getting it sorted. The Laura spoke to Kay Ingram from the advisor firm LEBC about the challenges of doing that and why you should tick it off your to-do list. So, Kay, thanks a lot for joining us. So at the best of times, most people don't really want to think about dying or preparing their estate for when they do die. But um, I think we've seen a bit of a pickup in during the corona crisis for people requesting wills. So the Law Society said that requests for wills are up around 30%. So why do you think that is? Well, I think the current crisis makes us all focus on our own mortality, which, as you rightly say, is something that we normally wish to avoid talking about. Um, but sadly, with, with the large number of fatalities and the realisation this is not just something that's going to affect people with underlying health conditions, but sadly others and younger people have also um, become victim of this virus, then it is something that makes everyone think about how they need to provide for their family and how they want to distribute their assets on their death. But lots of people tend to think that they don't need a will, don't they? Lots of people, well, I guess there's different camps. Some people just want to get one but never actually get around to doing it. It's a life admin t- um, task that never gets ticked off. And other people think that they don't have enough money, for example, or all their money will go to their spouse um, and think that they don't need a will. So is that true? Is it only a certain portion of the population that actually needs a will? No, it isn't actually. It is a common fallacy. And I think also you're quite right. The, the time uh, it might take as a barrier to some people, but that need not be the case because there are online will writing services. Um, we at LEBC offer one ourselves, uh, backed up by a firm of solicitors. Um, and it only needs to take a few minutes and it need not be expensive. I mean, you can get a will for £200 as a single person and as a couple, you can both have a will for £250. So it's not as expensive or time consuming as perhaps some people consider. But also there are a lot of myths around what happens to a person's estate when they die. And it's particularly important for those couples who are not married, who are cohabiting. I think there are 3.4 million uh, households in the UK, according to ONS, uh, which are cohabiting couples. And they could be left very much in the lurch if neither of them have a will, even if their assets are only of modest value. Uh, And the reason for that is that if you don't have a will, Basically, the state decides what happens to your assets. It's called intestacy, which I always think sounds like a rather nasty disease. Um, but what it means <laughs> is, is that you you haven't actually directed the courts as to how your assets um, and uh, personal effects should be distributed. And therefore, there is a set formula which decides that. Now, if you're married or in a civil partnership and you have no children, 
then the spouse or civil partner will get 100% under the law of intestacy. But even that situation, um, there is a need for a will there because if a couple in that situation were to die together in an accident, for example, then the law decides that the younger one is deemed to have survived the elder one. And so whereas uh, they might both have put money into a property and have joint savings, um, all of that money would go to the parents or siblings of the younger person. And, and that might not be what uh, the couple would expect to happen or want to happen. Uh, but where you've got children, um, the spouse or civil partner only inherits £270,000 outright, and then 50% of the balance of the estate, and the other 50% goes to the children automatically. And that might be fine, but it may not suit um, the, the requirements of the family. But worst of all are those couples who are not married or in civil partnerships, where effectively there is no spouse, and if they have children, everything goes to the children. The, the, the surviving partner gets nothing, uh, or if there are no children, then all the assets would go to the parents, first of all, or without them to the brothers and sisters of the deceased person. So, you know, a couple could be living together for many years, have contributed um, equally to uh, savings and investments and, and property, uh, and the survivor of that couple may get nothing if um, there's no will. So that there's lots of reasons for having one. And I think for everybody, one of the main reasons is to appoint an executor. Now, an executor is the legal term for the person who takes over from you when you die. Yeah, and that must be quite tricky to decide who, who takes that task, because it's quite, not only is it, I guess, quite a time-consuming task at, at points, but also it's quite a, a responsibility, isn't it? It is indeed, and, and people shouldn't become executors without being capable and aware of the responsibilities they're taking on, because you're quite right, it's not uh, it's not something you can do very casually. It, it involves legal responsibility for the actions you take. And uh, executives can actually be pursued by beneficiaries or potential beneficiaries if um, they think you haven't administered the estate in accordance with the will. And that is your duty as an executive, to follow the deceased wishes as set out in the will. Now, you can appoint one person or two people uh, or more. You can also appoint a firm of solicitors to act either on their own or jointly with, with someone who uh, is a friend or relative and knows the family situation. And that possibly is the ideal, uh, because while a solicitor will be fully au fait with all the legal requirements, they won't necessarily have that understanding of the personal relationships and the circumstances of different family members or friends that you wish to benefit. Um, if you don't appoint an executor, then um, the estate has to apply to the courts for administration, and that can take up to three months or more. Uh, so in that time, the person's assets are frozen, uh, debts can't be paid off, um, funeral costs can be paid, but, but very little else, and therefore that can cause all sorts of problems. So I think regardless of your personal family situation, uh, because sometimes single people who've got no children will say, well, I don't need a will. If, you know, if I die, somebody will sort it out and it doesn't really matter. But it can actually cause all sorts of difficulties with debts rolling up, investments that can't be managed, uh, couldn't be cashed in or couldn't be um, reinvested in a different way. And for a financial advisor, that is a problem, which really we don't want to have because uh, we don't want to have 
assets that we're helping someone build up during their lifetime to find that on their death, uh, the whole estate is frozen. And if you imagine that happening in the recent um, downturn on the stock market, that could actually be quite difficult for someone to manage and could lead to the loss of, of funds as a result of inaction. What are the practical difficulties that coronavirus is throwing up? Because you've obviously got people respecting social distancing rules, but some people um, self-isolating or even in the vulnerable category. Um, so how do you deal with that? Because I tend to think of, of wills and, and a lot of the legal world being a bit more old school in terms of there needs to be pen put to paper to sign things off and um, rather than things being done digitally. So has that thrown up a lot of problems? There is a practical problem and you're quite right. The Ministry of Justice has not um, chosen to change the requirement for a wet signature on a will. They felt that if they did that, there was potential for fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're probably right to be cautious about that, uh, particularly if we're talking about vulnerable people who may not be feeling well, who may be worried about the, the current uh, virus emergency and may um, be influenced by certain family members. So I think the Ministry of Justice are right to do that. And there are ways around this. Um, when you make a will, it has to be witnessed by two people uh, and that must be in person and they must be able to see you signing the document. Now, there are all sorts of ways that people are getting around this. And and the other difficulty is that those witnesses can't be your spouse or civil partner. Uh, They shouldn't be a beneficiary because if they are a beneficiary in your will, then that will void their entitlement under the will. And they can't be the Mm -hmm. executor. So you can't use close family members in most cases to act as witnesses. Um, So you need to go to someone outside your household. And the way in which people are getting around this, by and large, is to ask neighbours Uh, Or maybe if they've got a carer, if a carer is visiting, to ask them to act as witnesses. And they're doing this by um, the um, person signing the will, sitting by a window, for example, with the witnesses in the garden or over the fence, um, so that they can actually see the person sign the will, but they're not actually um, close together in a confined space so they can observe social distancing. And so there's also these kind of... um will kits that you can buy either online or by post which i imagine are appealing to some people at the moment that that guide you through the process and so do they do the the job just as well as well well it depends how they're supported um our bionic service is supported by a firm of solicitors so you can complete the questionnaire online in your own time and in your own convenience and that then is forwarded to a lawyer who will go through that uh, we'll then uh, email or call you to ask you questions about any ambiguities or to clarify any points, and we'll then draft a will. Uh, so we feel that that is a robust way of, of doing things. It, it's virtually the same as going into a solicitor's office face-to-face, except you're not having to do that. You can do it from your home, and it's something that we've been using for some time now before the current crisis, but obviously it does come into its own in these circumstances. The alternative that you're referring to is to purchase a kit uh, where you do a DIY will. So you don't have a lawyer checking it or giving you guidance on that. Um, And these are known by the legal profession as the lawyer's friend, um, because um, unfortunately, because people are not trained in in the law, might uh, make very simple mistakes when completing the forms. Um, they tend to be the cases that end up being contested wills. And so uh, you may think it's a cheaper way of doing it, um, but 
in practice, it can often lead to all sorts of problems, family disputes, people not speaking to each other for years, and uh, usually ends up with more legal fees being paid if uh, there is a dispute that, that ends up going to court. So we would advise people not to use those kits. Um, you know, they're not really adequate for the purpose. If you can do the same job with the benefit of legal advice for as little as £200, we feel that that is a price worth paying to make sure that everything is in order. Thanks a lot for listening to us this week. Remember, you can listen to us on Spotify, on the iPhone podcast app or on Podbean and just search for Money and Markets and we will see you next week. See you later. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.